Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Bishop Frank Caggiano came to the University of Notre Dame to deliver a major presentation about promoting co-responsibility between the laity and clergy for the mission of the church, that is, the mission of evangelization. In his own diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, Bishop Caggiano has exercised both tremendous initiative for attempting bold new ventures in evangelization and simple humility in recognizing the ways in which that initiative has needed to be redirected or reshaped from time to time. But both the initiative and the humility are in service to a fundamental gospel ideal. As he said during his address at Notre Dame, The love that we have discovered has taken our life over and compels us to share it with others. That love has a face, and that face is Jesus Christ. The responsibility we all share is to witness to the one who saves us. Today, Bishop Caggiano sits down with me, Leonard DiLorenzo of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, to talk about the mission of evangelization and co-responsibility among all the baptized. Bishop Caggiano, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So at the Called and Co-Responsible Conference here at Notre Dame, you shared the Face of Prayer project that you initiated as a specific model of what we're calling co-responsibility. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this project, what it seeks to do, where the idea or the inspiration for it came from. Tell us a little bit about Face of Prayer. It's about three and a half years old, Mm -hmm. and the genesis was um, there were a group of us who wanted to try to engage young people and young adults using technology to try to engage them in the life of the church and to lead them to form a community online that would eventually lead them to communities established of faith. Mm-hmm. And so what do people see when they go to Face of Prayer? Because this is all hosted online. Correct? It is hosted online, but there are different aspects. It's interesting mm-hmm. because after three years, I've learned many lessons. Okay. Yeah, which has informed my understanding of co-responsibility. Oh, okay. Right? Because it has different aspects. First, there is a daily text that is sent to anyone who enrolls to invite them to pray for a particular intention. That has been wildly successful. Really? Yeah, there are thousands of people. I think at this point, over 10,000 people who receive these texts every day, usually midday, around more or less. And people have come up to me all around the country and have said, this is a great thing. It's a reminder in the middle of my day of what's really important and to pray. Kind of a modern Angelus, right? It's like an Angelus it, spell, it, right? Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah very much so. Yeah. And there were a group of young people writing the prayer intentions. Mm-hmm. Now it is defaulted back to uh, the staff at Bridgeport. Okay. And we need to reboot to go back to a group of young people, which is one of the lessons I've learned okay. in the project. And then there is what I call a video catechism. Hmm. Because one of the insights of St. Mary's Press in their uh, documentation on disaffiliation in the church is that the breakdown of the relationship with the church is because young people have unanswered questions. Hmm. And when they accumulate to the point where they have enough unanswered questions that they are not hostile to the church, they become indifferent to, to faith. And you would almost prefer hostility, right? Because there's at least oh, passion, yeah. oh, right? There's absolutely. some form of engagement. Absolutely. In my yeah. talk, I talk about that. Growing yeah. up in an Italian family, emotions, <laughs> expressing them, it was never a problem exactly. for us. Right, right, never right. a problem for us. It's when somebody's silent that there's a real Oh, problem. then you yeah. know you're on thin ice. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> what we did was we gathered hundreds of questions that young people came up with. And we attempted to answer them and asked different people from around the country to answer mm-hmm. them. And that was successful. But we placed them online, and the thought was to create almost a video catechism. Mm -hmm. But the traffic to the site was not what I was hoping. 
people weren't coming there. Correct. Yeah. Right. So we need to push it out. Exactly. And then, of course, the, the piece of creating an online community uh, faltered in part because we did gather a group and they were very active. But then where do you go from there? You need established communities of faith that are vibrant, inviting, welcoming, mm -hmm. engaging of young people. And they're, they're not a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So that became also an issue. Now, why is this a lesson for co-responsibility? Well, if we understand co-responsibility as each individual person's response to the call of discipleship and the responsibility of effectively inviting others to faith in response to the love they have experienced in their life from the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the community's co-responsibility to make the community credible as a witness of faith, then what we are retooling the face of prayer precisely so that I and my team are not the creators or the guiders. We will be the mentors, and we're going to seed the entire project to young people. Is that right? So they become co-responsible. You're going to entrust them with the project. Exactly. But, but you're also not hands-off, what you're saying. No, like, not You're going to mentor and Just yeah. like the Synod on Youth in Rome exactly. spoke okay. of mentoring for young adults. Okay. So that's exactly what we're planning to do. So immediately, they have decided that rather than have videos, we should have podcasts, just like you and I are doing oh, right now. Okay. Because in their lifestyle, it fits their much more mobile lifestyle. They can listen to it in the car while they're walking somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And Become dangerous in pedestrian life. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's hope the, not, please. You want, their, you want their eyes up, right? <laughs> exactly. The, and their ears open, but their yeah, eyes up. Right. That's right. Yeah, there you go. And the hope would be that we would be able to create a platform where they are pushed out mm. one a day, similar to the texts for prayer are once a day. Mm -hmm. So we could create the curriculum. They could create the curriculum. It could even be random. But sooner or later, someone who's listening, if they listen on a regular basis, are going to encounter a question they've had for which they've had no answer. They may not have even known they have the question in that Correct. way, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And one last piece, if I may. Yeah, please. What we have done... And even here at the Institute, um, there have been some great experts answering the questions. Most of us are much older. Uh. What they are asking is young people to answer the very questions, young adults, because the best evangelizers of young people are young people. Another aspect of co-responsibility. So part of entrusting them, it would seem, is forming them and supporting them well to be able to our as competent and confident resource persons for each other to be able to do this kind of evangelization, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's a real, I mean, if we think about this, it sounds like, you know, you're describing what you've learned in the last few years with this project, and it might sound to people like, well, these are, they might be simple shifts. They're significant shifts. Oh, they're because paradigm shifts. They're paradigm shifts, right? Because when you were talking about having a site that people would come to, it's all about inbound traffic. So in order to engage young people, you're waiting for them to come to you online. But you've learned, and you've learned from the young people, that that's not the best mechanism. Mm -hmm. Nobody was coming. What really works is going to them. Correct. It, the, the pushing out, mm -hmm. as you said, with the prayer. Intentions. Which is the impulse of evangelization to mm -hmm. begin with. Mm -hmm. but, see, but the interesting thing is, for, for someone to truly be co-responsible, there has to be a vesting in the project. So co-responsibility is not collaboration or cooperation in a project, mm -hmm. because that's external. Okay. It's not even sharing in the decision-making, per se. What it is, it is a manifestation, it is a realization, it's a self-realization of what is owed by receiving so great a gift. With every gift comes responsibility. Mm -hmm. So for the young people who are going to take this project over and steward, what they need is to walk this journey of lighting the fire in their own hearts. Once that happens, then quite frankly, I very much can trust them to move forward because it's gonna be in response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in many ways. Mm -hmm. 
This cannot be a project or an initiative. This needs to be a labor of love that impels those who are going to be trusted to do this, to express what they have already encountered in their own life. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Bishop Frank Caggiano at the Diocese of Bridgeport. I want to think a little bit together about um, what that calls forth from people who are in positions of pastoral responsibility, yourself as a bishop, priest, ministers, mm-hmm. parents, mm-hmm. teachers. Um, we can't ourselves light the fire in somebody else. We can maybe create the conditions mm-hmm. that it becomes more likely. We can propose to them. We can um, kind of enable them to be set receptive. The set the stage. I love that. So for this particular project or other things, let's say, what do you see that as meaning in terms of your responsibility, like how practically you will change your approach to young people involved in this in this project, or you know others in your staff. I know it's not just it's not just you; it's a team of people that are doing this. Well, um, I have given this project over to a, a new diocesan young adult. I call it a council. What it really is is a community. Okay, of about twenty some odd young people. And, and when adults. we say young people, we mean well, there's late teens to forty ish. Okay. 40 So we're leaving young people very open to 40 ish. If you're well, yes, in your like 40, I, well, I'm yeah. 61, so I think that's your young, young, too, but young, I mean, young, besides young. the fact. No, this is very consoling to many of us, to many of our <laughs> listeners. 40 ish, which we can take in a very elastic sense to be counted as young people. This is excellent. Oh, yes, yes. of course. <laughs> but um, part of the difficulty we have struggled with in, a ch- in the church is that we have not used the entire arsenal that Christ has given us mm. to set the stage, mm-hmm. to set the conditions. Mm-hmm. So, if I could be a bit judgmental, please. We have We're a couple over, Italian Americans yeah, here, yeah, right. yeah. We have over intellectualized faith, mm. but that's only one of the three transcendentals you need to walk. So, it's truth, beauty, and goodness. goodness. Mm-hmm. And therefore, part of the formational experience for young adults is to offer them the full menu because an experience of beauty can unlock, can allow the critical mass that lighting of the fire to happen perhaps in a person A first Mm -hmm. and an intellectual conversion or a moment of enlightenment can happen in person B or the pursuit of a virtuous life that then expresses itself in service in person C. Mm -hmm. I think part of our task in this co-responsibility is if we're asking them to be engaged is to give them the full range of how to encounter the Lord and then the Lord will choose how the day and time it will happen. Hmm. And it seems to me we have come to the point in the life of the church post-Vatican renewal where we look back and say we have gained much and we have lost much and now we need to regain that which we have lost. Kind of rene- well, this is the new springtime. It's a sort of resource month, right? To take back the treasures. Part of it is theological. Part of it is the intellectual, as you're saying, the, tr- right. the discovery of truth and reproposing and teaching that better. But the beauty. I mean, beauty is is seems like on the cutting edge of all of this. Like we, in some ways, we've forgotten how to encounter the beautiful right. and how to be prepared for the beautiful. Right. And I wonder how much of that has to do with our distractedness in modern, modern life and the distractedness of our young people, creating the opportunities for them to be struck by beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, to be honest, I don't have a full answer to that question I don't as either. to how it happened. Yeah. Part, my suspicion is that it is a, an adverse effect of the technological platform, mm-hmm. which has become information-driven. 
It can also be used powerfully to engage beauty mm-hmm. and the image. Mm-hmm. In fact, the evidence is clear that physiologically, those who are formed in technology actually cognate differently. Mm-hmm. So they use image to cognate in ways that perhaps myself, who's much older, would do more in the written word. Right, right. So if that's the premise, then we can take this challenge or even this deficit and reverse it fairly quickly if we unlock all of the tradition of the church, including its music and its art mm-hmm. and its literature and its architecture. Right and pilgrimage right. and prayer because I actually have always held that prayer and the celebration of the liturgy is as much an act of beauty as it is an act of the intellect yeah it's very interesting at our own parish a lot of parishes have really dedicated themselves let's say to Eucharistic adoration and at our own parish which we don't have an adoration chapel so we can't have perpetual adoration or anything mm-hmm. but we dedicated at our parish one night a week overnight for, so from 9pm to 7am to Eucharistic mm-hmm. adoration and had people sign up for slots so there's always somebody there in the nighttime hours um, and part of the experience for the people there as we've heard back is it's the encounter with silence and the simplicity of the church and we'll speak about it in terms of the beauty of it with without being able to explain what it was, but they know, we know, those of us who are there, it's an encounter with yes. our Lord, yes. who silently the and beautifully there. He's the beautiful one. Mm. You see, in many ways, my sense is that the struggle of the 21st century in the life of the church is the struggle for the heart, not necessarily the mind. It is engaging someone on the deepest level so that affectively, one can feel the encounter as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where our hearts not burning within us. He didn't say that our minds were burning, <laughs> right? Our hearts yeah. were burning yeah. because they have touched the core of who we are. So beauty is the path least traveled in the 21st century, and in my estimation, is the one we need to bring forward the most. Yeah. That image of the disciples on the road to Emmaus seems so apt to what you were talking about for even going back to this project, the face of prayer, mm-hmm. and entrusting it to young people, that it's not they're just collaborating on it and it's a project we're working on, but it's really a labor of love. They have the passion for it, and mm-hmm. then it really will, will mm-hmm. take off. Because that's precisely, as you're pointing out, where those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the would-be disciples who really mm-hmm. become disciples, mm-hmm. not only are their hearts burning with them, but they run themselves to proclaim. It's by their energy, with haste, as Mary did, you know, in running to Elizabeth, with haste, to well done. S- spread this good well news, said, right? Well said. Two parts, two, there are two aspects of that story that I find fascinating, which I reflected on during the Synod on Youth, both of which I had not really given much thought, mm-hmm. even though I've preached on it for years. Mm-hmm. The first is the seminal insight that Jesus, not only did he listen to the disciples, but he actually listened walking with them in the wrong direction. <laughs> I mean, they're going away from Jerusalem. But, but now think about that for a second. The Lord, the yeah. Master, the Creator of yeah. all things is walking in the wrong direction. But he knows it's the wrong direction. But he's accompanying with patience because he knows they will change direction. That's how many pastoral leaders are willing to walk in the wrong direction for a season to allow them to find the uh-huh. fire to uh-huh. turn around? And the second insight is, once they did, he trusted them. She disappeared. She's gone. Yeah. So he trusted them. He didn't in walk them back. But no. He didn't walk them back. He, he trusted them to exactly. run back. Yeah. Exactly. Two interesting insights. Unfortunately, the first part you said have now challenged me to think about my parenting, right? Like to, <laughs> to walk with my children in the wrong direction. Does the yogurt belong there? No, it doesn't. But I'll walk with you to throw the yogurt on the floor. And I'll, I'll no, try no, to... no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I know no. what you're saying. I know what you're saying. That is... 
that is a fascinating realization. And it, I had never thought of it that way myself. Right. I, I, I'm so grateful for that. Thanks for that. So he not only, I mean, because we, we know that he walks with them, but to really put it in those terms, to think about the humility of our God, to walk in the wrong direction with it, not just to walk with us, but knowingly to go in the wrong direction so as to reach their heart. To allow them the opportunity mm. to have the fire lit. Mm. Then when the fire lit, he fed it, broke bread. Right. Word of God. Right. His word. And then the rest was history. Yeah. And, and the, what, I'm, what I always wonder now, since, since the Synod is, what did they actually accomplish in the great nexus that forms Christian life? Because we are all interrelated, yeah. and we're all standing on someone else's shoulders. I wondered to myself, what is it that they accomplished that could have actually fed the fact that you and I are sitting here right now? This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Bishop Frank Caggiano of the Diocese of Bridgeport. One thing they affected for sure is they themselves were invested, right? Absolutely. So that this is the only way in which the gospel has ever been passed on Absolutely. is by the by the personal investment of those who carry the message. It's not just a message they they give over. It's something that they suffer for. It's something they they have skin in the game, so to speak. Absolutely. So this is that would seem like that's part of what's passed on. It's not just the message, but it's also the manner of proclaiming it. And so that brings me back again to what you're talking about in the beginning of entrusting young people, mentoring young people and then entrusting them with the mission. It's part of that mentoring it seems is actually showing them I have I, who am mentoring you, am invested in this. If I may put it this way. Please. The, 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 the concept of co-responsibility does not mean that I entrust to you as a young person this task. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I help you discover that which you are already responsible by baptism. Mm. You don't need my permission per se. What you will need is my guidance and my support. I will accompany you so that you can do it effectively, but you're obligated to do it by baptism. Right. Everybody is. That's the responsibility part. And the community is obligated together, each in our own state of life, to become credible again in the world. Yeah. Of which the world does not see us as credible, particularly because of past failures, and also because we live in a world where we could create our own community. Mm-hmm on the technological platform. People that look like me, talk like me, believe like me, and then with social media, militarizing it so that we become tribes. Yeah. The church is not a tribe. Yeah. Church is the people of God. So in the room, at any given mass, are, forgive me, the good, the bad, the ugly, the everybody's right. here. And how many spaces in our modern world actually bring that together now? If you Correct. think, I mean, I've come back to this and thought about this and actually come to value the life in a parish, which a lot of times as a, when I was a younger person, you know, I wasn't getting excited about being involved in a parish. It wasn't like on my mm-hmm. horizon as something to get excited about. But now that I've lived in a parish with my family for a couple of decades, right, and being there and spending this season after season with many of the same people and new people, how many spaces in our modern world do you have this kind of group of people that is brought together where there isn't any there is no entrance exam beforehand about being there right like you don't have to meet my criteria of what you how you think what you look like what you do the poor are sitting next to the rich and the younger sitting next to the old Um, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful assembly however the world in which we live will tell you that that sort of community you cannot control right cannot serve your interests right and if the starting point is me there has to be something far more compelling than the constant barrage on every level of life that my life is all about me. Mm-hmm. So that which is compelling is a co-responsibly lived community that actually is alive in faith. Mm. 
That will debunk the modern lie. Absent that, it will not. So we are at the point where we have no choice but to live heroic lives personally of holiness and communities of holiness similar to the primitive and patristic church. In your diocese of Bridgeport, which you've been in now for some time, how have you tried to instill this kind of renewal of the, the community, the parish community within your own diocese? Well, it's, it has been an uphill battle in many ways. I imagine everywhere it would be. Yes, right? it is. It's a particular type of uphill battle. Yeah, there. it is. Yeah. Uh, particularly in New England, because we are the most secularized section of the country mm-hmm. in many ways. And there's a congregationalist background, which in the landscape of which I just described can right. easily devolve into just my little community, right. which looks like me, talks right. like me, acts like me, believes what I believe. Um, so the synod that was in 2014 excited a great amount of people. In your diocese, the synod diocese. of your diocese that you called first time in several decades. Yeah, about 35 years. Sure. And it did, and some great initiatives came out of that, including the Leadership Institute, which is now really providing many, many different formational experiences for adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, but we're still struggling with um, the shadow of the abuse crisis, where it's true everywhere in the country. And there is a level of disaffection because of that, which is goes back to the credibility of the community. So I have seen the beginnings of seedlings growing of communities, particularly among the ecclesial communities, but also in certain parishes where people are really beginning to, I guess when you're stripped naked, you have nothing else left, <laughs> but to go back to, to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to see some of that. But it has been a long haul. It will continue to be a long haul. So it's both rebuilding trust, because you're not going to have investment without mm-hmm. trust. And then on the other hand, it's the investment in, Absolutely. in these communities and one another. Absolutely. As bishop of, of a diocese, especially post-2018-19, post-2002, I mean, mm-hmm. much of your, your life as a bishop has been lived in these, this, mm-hmm. this newest time of, mm-hmm. of scandal and trial and responding to it. What have you understood as your role as bishop to be, or how have you understood that differently um, in this kind of setting now where rebuilding trust in this particular way is so crucial? Another basic lesson I've learned, and that is coming out of my own training where the church was much more seen institutionally, mm-hmm. and therefore it is about numbers and initiatives and programs. And um, I have come to realize that true evangelization is really one person at a time. And one of the fruits of that is that there were a number of individuals who were uh, horribly abused as young people, who have become some of my closest friends in the diocese, people that I have relied on, and themselves have become agents of healing. One of the most beautiful moments in, in my entire seven years so far in Bridgeport was when they addressed the whole presbyterate. There wasn't a dry eye in the whole place. And These are the former victims, those who were victimized. Survivors, you yeah. know, yes, who spoke to them about how they stood with them, mm. the good guys, mm. because they too were wounded. See, those sort, of, those sort of moments are transformational, but they only occur when you walk with someone, one person at a time, and now they are walking with people who have been abused and were victimized and are now survivors. So... That's a whole new methodology. We spoke about a paradigm shift. There's a complete paradigm shift going forward. We are missionary in nature. And when you are missionary in nature, the very structure of what we have created in the United States, which is very much has served its purpose, 
nonetheless, in its age. We need to think outside some of that structure so that we can enable, just like you and I having this conversation, mm -hmm. to have that in every aspect of life. So in co-responsibility, everybody needs to do this work, not just the priests, not just the lay leaders, everyone has to understand to do that. We're drawing near to the end of our time already, which is sort of unbelievable. It feels like we just started talking, but I wonder as we come to the end, if I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your work with Catholic Relief Services, which might sound like, it, you know, now we're jumping to something else, but I imagine this is not just something no, not else, at not at all, right? So not Catholic Relief Services on which uh, you serve as the chairman of the board currently. Um, what is the, well, I mean, I, I suppose I can ask you, what do you value in Catholic Relief Services? But I'm especially interested in what does Catholic Relief Services mean for the life and vitality of the church in the United States, mm -hmm. right? Because it's outward facing, but what does it mean mm -hmm. for the life and vitality of the church in the United States? Mm -hmm. Well, let me say this. I, one of the great challenges is to continue to bring forward and educate people on the mission of Catholic Relief Services because it is relatively unknown mm -hmm. and yet it does tremendous amount Incredible. of Incredible. Two CRS workers were martyred in the last two weeks. One in the South Sudan, one in Haiti, at the front line of the work of charity. Both attempting to bring supplies and establishing supply lines for the poorest of the poor. See, in my mind, if the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the growth of the church, then it is there in Catholic mm. Church. It is there in Catholic Relief Services and in the charity that it does and the empowerment that it does. Because it's not just simply to provide food, but it's, it's attempting to, to scale what it does so that we can actually transform communities and perhaps even societies. So within the United States, I think we need to get the message out further. And we need to challenge people. Because many times, uh, for those of us who grew up in, forgive me for putting this way, armchair Catholicism, mm -hmm. charity is giving a donation, we're done. Right. But it's not that. Right. It's standing side by side with individuals. It's literally lifting them up. And quite frankly, as Catholic Charities is the face of the American church to the global world, in 114 countries, 67, 6,800 workers, we need to do that in our own communities. So why I'm excited about being part of Catholic Relief Services is in part because young adults who are disaffected from the church that part of its mission, they will understand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bishop Caggiano, thank you so much for making time oh, to be pleasure. with us. Thank it's, you for it's being It's so thank good you. to have you here. If you would like to watch Bishop Caggiano's address at the Called and Co-Responsible Conference, you can check it out on the McGrath Institute for Church Life's YouTube page or by visiting our website at mcgrath.nd.edu. Just go to the conference page on there and we'll have the links for it. My thanks again, Bishop Caggiano, and thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. 
When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?